Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, Canada records its first COVID-19 death in British Columbia. And as the number of cases of the coronavirus continues to grow, so does the damage to the Canadian economy. Oil prices plunge, stock markets nosedive. Why is it happening and what could the federal government do to cushion the blow? Conservative leadership candidate Aaron O'Toole has a strategy for winning over Conservatives, but can it win over the country too? Aaron O'Toole joins me to talk about that. The federal government moves to ban conversion therapy across the country to end all efforts to change the sexual orientation of LGBTQ Canadians. And our press gallery panel looks ahead to a week of major challenges for the Prime Minister and his government. But we will begin with another day of concern and anxiety over the continued increase in the cases of the COVID-19 virus in this country. Canada has now recorded its first COVID-19 death, a man in a nursing home in British Columbia. Canada's chief public health officer is warning Canadians to stay off of cruise ships. We'll have more on that coming up a little bit later. And as concerns over public safety increase, they are matched by worries about the growing effect of the outbreak on the Canadian economy. North American stock markets today plunged so steeply that trading was temporarily halted less than 10 minutes after the markets opened. By the end of the day, the TSX had dropped more than 1,600 points, losing 10% of its value. The Dow Jones dropped more than 2,000 points, or nearly 8% of its value. Oil prices, already dropping because of lower demand caused by the virus, plummeted more than 30% today thanks to a feud between major oil-producing nations who can't agree to reduce output, even while demand is falling. It's the largest single-day price drop since the Gulf War in 1991. Canada's finance minister says he is ready to respond. I think what, uh, what I'm trying to say clearly to Canadians is we have, we have a strong uh, fiscal position. We have been lowering our level of debt as a function of our economy for the past four years. That puts us in a good position to support people as they go through challenges. It puts us in a good position to support our health care system so we can ensure it stays strong. It puts us in a good position to make measures for companies as they face challenges. And of course, puts us in a good position to deal with, with any potential challenges in the economy. So what we'll finally do will be very much about the facts. That was Finance Minister Bill Morneau saying the government stands ready to help. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney responded to the oil price crash today as well. His government recently presented a budget based on $58 a barrel oil. It's about half of that now, and that means hundreds of millions of dollars in lost revenues. Here's how the Alberta Premier addressed the latest shock to the provincial economy. Later this week, I will be traveling to Ottawa, and I will present uh, to the Government of Canada and the Prime Minister several actions that are urgently needed uh, to help uh, to uh, protect our economy from the price collapse and the global downturn. And I'm sure that m many, if not all, of my provincial and territorial uh, counterparts will join with me in that call as we lead up to the federal budget at the end of this month. Our Finance Minister, Travis Taze, has been speaking with uh, Federal Finance Minister Morneau about these issues today. 
and I have instructed officials and ministers in our government urgently to develop other proposals that could help to counteract this downturn, both through federal action and by action by the government of Alberta. Well, let's bring in three members of Parliament now to debate the current blows to the Canadian economy and how the government is responding to those blows. From the foyer of the House of Commons tonight, I'm joined by Darren Fisher, the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Health. Michael Cooper is the Deputy Finance Critic for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Peter Julian is the Finance Critic for the NDP. Good to see you all, gentlemen. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. Uh, Darren Fisher, let me start with you. Uh, we've, uh, we are seeing the continued uh, spread of the virus in this country, although... So far, uh, no widespread community outbreak that everybody fears. We, we knew the big economic hit was coming, and now it's here. W what is your government's message to Canadians about this major economic shock and how you're responding to it? Well, we just heard the uh, Minister of Finance say very clearly that we had the, the fiscal capacity to deal with whatever comes our way. And as you know, uh, this has been changing. This, uh, this coronavirus issue has been changing so quickly, and uh, being able to respond as needed is something that's very important, and I'm fortunate that we're very fortunate that we have the ability to deal with that. Right, but when the Minister of Finance says that the government has the fiscal firepower to respond to this crisis, isn't he really saying uh, it just isn't an issue to spend again because you're already running a $30 billion deficit and you'll run a higher one if you need to? Well, he certainly didn't say that. He did say that, that he's working with all of his counterparts and, and ensuring that we have the ability to respond as needed. So uh, he certainly didn't speak to any future deficits regarding, uh, you know, uh, the coronavirus issue. No, but, but, but the, the, I think the message is that you're not, you're, you're not going to be afraid to spend on this because you haven't been afraid to spend on other issues as a government for the last five years. And I'm not passing judgment on that. I'm saying that uh, you, you're, you're saying that uh, your approach to the debt-to-GDP ratio says you're on the right track uh, fiscally and you're happy to spend here if you need to. Yeah, and, and we've seen good results from the uh, investing that we've done in Canada in the last few years. We've seen the lowest unemployment in my lifetime. We've seen uh, over a million jobs created by Canadians. So, you know, we've, we've seen successes over the last few years, and it's built in that, uh, uh, that the capacity that the PBO agrees is there. Okay, Mr. Cooper, let me turn to you. You're an Alberta MP. Your province is suffering another uh, shot today with oil prices uh, crumbling. How does your party believe the government should be responding to this shock? Well, we have a government that uh, governed for the last four years as if the good times would never end. And so they abandoned all of their fiscal anchors with uh, massive waste, uh, massive deficits, uh, massive debt, uh, with no plan, uh, no contingency for uh, a downturn in the economy and other uh, uncertainties arising from events like a coronavirus or the illegal blockades. Instead, what we have is a government that has left the cupboard bare. And uh, as a result, we don't have the kind of fiscal response, uh, the fiscal capacity right. that we should have. But to follow that analogy, to follow that analogy if, uh, if, the way, if, if, that cupboard, if there's a cupboard that's bare, the government can go to another cupboard and borrow stuff uh, to fill up that cupboard. So I guess, given the current situation, uh, notwithstanding what you say this government's done for the past five years, given the current situation, would you suggest now they cut back on spending or go ahead and spend more if that's what's needed to deal with this shock? We have proposed a number of ideas to stimulate the Canadian economy, and that begins by reducing taxes on workers and small businesses, rolling back anti-development uh, legislation like the No Pipelines Bill C-69 and the Tanker Ban Bill C-48, uh, reducing uh, red tape, which has been a stranglehold 
on small businesses by uh, imposing a two-for-one rule. In other words, for every new regulation, that there be the elimination of two regulations, which uh, builds upon the current one-to-one -one rule and uh, eliminating waste that this government has, okay. uh, uh, I mean, spent hundreds of millions of dollars giving to their corporate friends. So uh, the answer and, and is And those measures you would take right now in this, in this current situation, cutting taxes and so on, you think that would be what would help the, the country get through this latest shock? We, we believe that that would help uh, restore confidence, uh, return investment, and get Canadians okay. back to work, contrary Mr. to the approach of this government, which is just to spend, spend, and spend some more. Mr. Julian, how should the government be responding to this economic, these economic shocks the, from the coronavirus? <coughs> Well, what they should be doing is making investments in our healthcare system. We, the Harper Conservatives uh, slashed what should have been um, a, a clause that allows for adequate health care funding across the country, and the Liberal government has continued that practice. So, uh, health care funding is, uh, is, has been strapped because of those measures. We, we also believe, uh, and Jagmeet Singh said this very eloquently in the House today, uh, that when somebody is having to choose between putting food on the table for their family or having to isolate themselves because they may have contracted the coronavirus, it's a very difficult choice to make. And that, so EI has to allow for that sick leave for, for people that don't have provision of sick leave for many Canadian families, and about half of them are $200 away from insolvency on any given month. For many Canadian families, they don't have provision for sick leave. If they don't go to work, uh, they can't feed their family. So these are the kinds of measures, uh, practical measures, that you would expect a government to take. Uh, but we have to uh, find on the revenue side as well the, the way it means to pay for that. And the parliamentary budgetary officer talked, as you know, Peter, about yeah. $25 billion that go uh, offshore every year in overseas tax havens. We need to start closing that and, and making sure we're building up Okay. fiscal capacity of the government even more. Mr. Fisher, the COVID-19 impact comes along with the impact from blockades and already slumping economic uh, growth in this country even before the coronavirus hit. So when the finance minister says the fiscal framework allows you to handle these shocks, if, if the object, uh, which it's been uh, since your government took power, is to maintain the debt-to-GDP ratio, given this kind of shock, does that mean spending cuts in other areas would have to come in the budget? Well, what we've seen, Peter, is we've seen a willingness to help Canadians. First of all, we think about the health and safety of Canadians, and then we think about the impact on the economy. And, you know, at times like these, these are trying times, it's important that we look after Canada. We have, we've invested in Canada for the last five years. We've seen growth. We've seen really good results. And now it's time to step up to the plate and, and be there to help Canadians as needed and to help Canadian businesses as needed. And I'm looking forward to Budget 2020 to uh, see whether there's uh, things in there that the Minister of Finance is uh, willing to do for Canadians. All right. So you're suggesting we, we, we don't need, need to see cuts in this budget if the government's going to maintain a track, uh, uh, that relationship on debt to GDP ratio, which everybody seems to suggest is going to take a hit given the current crisis. Well, you know, we've seen the, the debt-to-GDP ratio go down every year, I think, except for one. And we've seen, you know, we've heard from economists all over the world that we're in a very, very strong position, the strongest position in that, in that uh, measurement in all of the G7. So, you know, we, we feel right. strong about this. We feel that it's important to take care of Canadians and take care of Canadian well, businesses. Okay. And I think well, it's, it's important to realize that this is, these are trying times and this is the time okay. that we'll... Mr. Cooper, let me, you can jump in here, but I want to sure. start, hang on, if the government is going to have to spend billions to manage this economic <clears throat> crisis, should the budget begin to make cuts, or is that the wrong time for that? Well, look, uh, this government has uh, left uh, 
Canada in a very difficult position because they spent during the good times without any contingency plan for a global economic downturn or a downturn in the, the economy. Right, I just and, want to be clear, you're not suggesting they cut during the bad well, times now, well, notwithstanding what they may have done before. Well, they, they put Canada in a very difficult position. And uh, I know that uh, the government would like to talk about coronavirus as though uh, that is the reason for the economic downturn. But after spending uh, tens of billions of dollars, $75 billion uh, of new debt, uh, we had 0.3% GDP growth in the last quarter of 2019. Uh, currently, our economy is projected to grow at half of that of the United States. Canada has the highest unemployment rate in the G7 other than Italy and France, uh, who are hardly models uh, in terms of how they have performed economically, 30% higher than that of the United okay. States. My, so question, my question, though, was very clear. Should this budget deliver cuts, or is this the wrong time for that? It, it, it's certainly time to look at restoring fiscal responsibility. Okay. And, uh, and we have put forward a comprehensive plan uh, to do just that, okay. to Mr. stimulate Julian, the Canadian economy. Mr. Julian, what do you, is, what do you want to see? Like I, I've jumped ahead here because we don't know when the budget's going to be, but... It, uh, all things being equal, it should be in the next few weeks unless it gets pushed off because of the crisis we're in now. Um, what does that budget have to do? Uh, well, we believe in stimulus for clean energy, uh, that we need to start making that transition to clean energy. Uh, before the coronavirus, we were already being beset with uh, huge costs to our economy of climate change, uh, $5 billion a year. Five billion, another $5 billion in, uh, in insurance costs that have increased as well. So we're already seeing the impacts of climate change. We need to, to see a government that takes action on that. And, and we're looking for practical, uh, practical elements that would actually make a big difference. For example, pharmacare, that's a no-brainer. When the parliamentary budgetary officer says that Canada as a whole would save $4 billion, and right. Canadian businesses would save $6 billion from universal do you think that's pharmacare. A, do you think that's I mean, still realistic? I'm just, look, look, we're going to have a first minister's meeting Friday, and they're going to go to that room, and they're going to say, put pharmacare to the side. We need, we need an increase in health transfers to the provinces. Oh, that's I, the priority now, absolutely. and certainly that seems to be amplified while we're talking about coronavirus. A absolutely, and that, that's an issue. But as well, we're, we're talking about pharmacare because of the, the practical implications of that. And, and as I say, we need to take action on the revenue side. That's where the overseas tax havens, uh, where putting in, in place capping the stock option okay. loophole, all of these uh, giveaways that, are, that go to very wealthy Canadians and very profitable corporations need to stop so we have the wherewithal to make the investments that are going to help people. All right, gentlemen, that's our time for tonight. Uh, thank you all for uh, your perspectives, and we'll talk again. Take care. Thanks, Peter. Thanks very much. Well, let's get another perspective on the market meltdown and what role a federal government can play when the economy uh, suffers these setbacks. And and exactly where are we heading with all of this? Ian Lee is a professor in the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. He is with me now. Ian Lee, good to see you again. My pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Let's start right there. Are, are we heading for a recession? Are you convinced of that? I, I believe we are. Um, uh, and I don't just mean Canada. I mean, we're going to be, I think we're going to a global, uh, global synchronized recession uh, because of the impact of the coronavirus on the supply side. But meaning shutting down supply because factories are closed and people are being quarantined. 
but it's feeding over onto the demand side because people are terrified. So what are they doing? Staying home, not going to shopping centers, not getting on airplanes, not going to restaurants. In other words, they're not doing all the things that we normally do, yeah, which the, involves spending money. Right. And so all that money is being pulled, sucked out of the economy, and that's surely going to hit an awful lot of businesses. Now, can and, I, so, okay, uh, that may be where we're headed. And let's look at the path of how we get there, uh, given what we've seen uh, certainly today with a, a meltdown in the stock yes. markets, plunging oil prices. Connect those dots for us. Sure. sure. Why are we, what's the connection between coronavirus and plunging oil prices and, you know, um, why we're seeing what we're seeing? Right. Uh, you're right. It does start with the coronavirus and it started in China. And why that's important is China's the second largest economy in the world, 14 trillion GDP in U.S. dollars. Uh, they're the largest importer of oil in the entire world. And because of the coronavirus, shutting down Wuhan and many, many factories, and then people self-isolating on their own, what happened was the demand for oil in China dropped over 20% or over 3 million barrels a day. And that came straight out of the world economy, uh, the world oil economy, mm -hmm. because they imported it. That drove down prices for oil. Saudi Arabia called an emergency meeting of OPEC last week in Vienna. Of course, Russia was there because Russia and China are the two of the three largest oil producers in the world, along with U.S. Mm -hmm. They negotiated for three days for production cuts to try and keep uh, the price of oil up. And at the end of three days, the Russians said, nope, we're out of here. And China, excuse me, right, Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia. Saudi Arabia is so determined to maintain their market share. They said, "Okay, we're we're going to get you, but we're gonna we're gonna fight for our share, and we're gonna pay. You're gonna pay a price." So what they did is they immediately cut the price by six bucks a barrel to China, one of their biggest customers, and they announced a million. They're gonna pump a million barrels more a day of oil into a market where there's a huge surplus of oil right now because of the demand being down, because of factories being closed, not people not flying airplanes and so forth. Right. So that, in turn, what we're witnessing now is a global game of chicken, if you will, between Saudi Arabia and Russia, Russia Mr. Putin, to see who will blink first. And, and that's where we're, we are right now. So what effect does that have on governments in this country? And particularly, we're talking about Alberta. I mean, what's the effect of all this in Alberta? Devastating, in one simple word, devastating. Just very quickly to, to, uh, to sort of connect some more dots. Every oil company and oil well and oil producing country has a different cost of production, which is critical because that tells you what you, your break even point right. tells you what kind of a price of oil you can bear. Saudi has the lowest oil price extraction cost in the world. Right. They just pump feet, it out of the ground. It's it 200 feet down the ground. It's all sand. You just stick your well in. And there somewhere it's been widely reported by reputable sources between 15 and 17 U.S. a barrel to pull it out of the ground. Russia is in the mid-40s to 50s. Canadian oil sand producers are in the 60s per barrel. U.S. shale producers are in the 45. The Fed Reserve Dallas did a study last year, and they calculated around $45, $48 a barrel for the shale producers. So you can see if oil's down to $30 a barrel, most countries, save and except Saudi Arabia, are losing their shirt. So if you're the... Uh, if you're the federal government, if you're the finance minister, we've got a budget coming up. What, what can a federal government, what can this federal government do to, to mitigate? You can't stop what's happening. That's right. That's right. It's happening outside our borders, so, that's right. and we don't control it. Is the best you can do is to try and support people and mitigate against the damage from it? I think uh, that's why I was critical of the, of the uh, interest rate cut, because I don't believe that monetary policy will work in this instance. Partly it's at a very, very low level to start with. And more importantly, I'm not going to go back to work if I'm staying home because I'm terrified of getting the coronavirus. 
Paris. I'm sitting in China or South Korea or Italy. I'm not going to go to work just because the central bank got interest rates half a point. I'm going to say I'm not going there. I'm not going shopping. That won't work. It's on the fiscal side, and Morneau is going to have to, I think, stand up and say that they're going to, I don't want to use the word bailout, but provide liquidity and support right. to those industries to stop mass bankruptcy. I mean, ho hotels, airlines, uh, you know, and that the, the travel and entertainment and sector convention centers all you know, are just getting whacked. They're getting hammered. And so I think he's going to have to stand up. How you disperse the money, how you allocate it, is details to be determined by the bureaucrats. But he's going to have to announce liquidity support, especially for SMEs, because they're the most vulnerable. They're going to be going down like ten pins in a small, alley. small, medium enterprise. Small, medium enterprise. So you're, you're, I mean, you're well aware of the government's fiscal framework here, and it's it's approach to spending and deficits. It's all about uh, maintaining uh, or lowering the debt to GDP ratio. Uh, that's the measure of, of their that's fiscal right. approach. I mean, is, is that whole, is, given what we're seeing now and what, you know, the way the government might have to respond, um, is that approach in peril? I mean, that, that standard of being able to say, Look at the debt to GDP ratio. Is that in peril if this lasts a fair bit of time? I think it is. Uh, the PBO warned, uh, they didn't predict it was going to be blown through, the, that debt to GDP ratio, but they certainly highlighted it that it's at risk. I think, given the gravity and the enormity of this crisis, that understandably and properly so any minister of finance including mr morneau is going to have to say number one is saving the economy number one is saving those thousands upon thousands of businesses that are being gutted and destroyed uh, by the complete collapse of revenues in certain sectors mm -hmm. so he's going to have to say we'll worry we'll come back and talk about that after with the getting a plan back into if not balance into uh, bringing gdp debt to gdp into line but i think in the in the in the short run he's going to suspend it or uh, say setting it aside because that's not the priority. The priority, of course, is all of these businesses that have been whacked. And of course, the reason that's important to everybody is because they employ millions of people. Mm -hmm. And these people, if these businesses do fail, then you're going to see a, an enormous increase in unemployment. So the government pays either in the short run or in the longer run because they, uh, the EI is run by the government of Canada. So if you don't save these businesses from failing right now, well, you're, it shows up in a different category sure. called unemployment insurance. All right, Ian Lee, always good to get your perspective. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, now let's turn to the latest on the spread of the COVID-19 virus. Canada has recorded the first death from the virus, a nursing home resident, a man in British Columbia. There are now 77 confirmed uh, or presumptive cases in this country. That's of the more than 110,000 cases now confirmed worldwide. Ontario has reported 34 confirmed or presumed cases, and there are 32 confirmed cases now in British Columbia. Alberta is reporting seven confirmed or presumed cases. Quebec reporting four cases. Public health officials continue to say the risk of transmission in Canada remains low. But they are warning Canadians to be careful when traveling and specifically to avoid cruise ships. I've asked Canadians to think twice about going on cruise ships. Today, the Public Health Agency of Canada is recommending that Canadians avoid all cruise ship travel due to COVID-19. Cruise ships have passengers from around the world who may be arriving from areas with known or unknown spread of the novel coronavirus. The virus can spread quickly on board cruise ships due to the close contact between passengers. So the advice from the government today, don't take a cruise. And there are also discussions now among health officials about whether the cruise ship season in Canada should be delayed because of the outbreak. 
Six of the cases in Canada are people who were passengers on a previous cruise aboard the Grand Princess cruise ship. And right now, 237 Canadians are on that same ship quarantined in California. It's expected they will be flown back to Canada, perhaps uh, as early as overnight, on a plane chartered by the Canadian government, paid for by the cruise line. The ship uh, has been hit by a coronavirus outbreak. So far, 19 crew and two passengers have tested positive for the virus. The Canadians will be flown to Canadian Forces Base Trenton in Ontario, where they will be quarantined for 14 days. The federal government is also asking the provinces to identify any gaps and shortages they may be facing in their health care systems in case the outbreak gets worse. We are very alive to the fact that prov some provinces are indicating that they have, uh, they have deficits and we are gathering that information and we have said all along that we will be there as a federal government to support them with the resources they need, whether those are financial resources or practical resources. You mentioned kits, uh, uh, personal protective equipment, ventilators. Dr. Tam can speak a little bit about the components of the testing kits. So we are in the process right now of ensuring that we understand where those potential deficits will be from uh, province to province and we obviously have supply on hand of some of the materials and are doing the assessment right now with provinces in terms of what their particular needs are as it relates to a surge in capacity uh, related to COVID-19. Well, let's shift our focus now to the Conservative Party leadership race and one of the candidates viewed as one of the front runners. He's former cabinet minister, Ontario MP Aaron O'Toole, and he joins me now from Toronto. Mr. O'Toole, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me today. Good to be back. Uh, you and Peter McKay and Marilyn Gladue have all said your first order of business in the fall, if you are chosen Conservative leader, would be to move a motion of non-confidence in the Trudeau government. Why is that your number one priority? Well, I think everyone needs to show that Canada and the world is losing confidence in Mr. Trudeau. Uh, Mr. Buffett's withdrawal of his investments from Canada is a sign that under the Liberals, there's no confidence in Canada's economy. There's no confidence in maintaining the rule of law. There's certainly no confidence in the Conservative opposition in their ability to turn things around. So we will have the vote and we will start a report card. And every time we're showing a lack of confidence on key issues for Canadians, we will keep score of that and we'll show that scorecard in the next election, Peter, and replace this government and get Canada back on track. When you're watching uh, what we're seeing today, a, a meltdown in the markets, uh, dropping oil prices, real concern in the country about the coronavirus outbreak and about uh, its effect on the economy. Um, what are you thinking as you watch this? Is, is this? Do you drop this at the feet of the government or is this one of those things that no government can expect? Uh, you can prepare for it, but it's not of the government's doing, is it? No, but what I was thinking, Peter, was it's too bad they were spending out of control and being reckless with our economy when times were good over the last few years because we're now not ready for a global recession. Uh, certainly, I don't think they've been as proactive as needed on the coronavirus. I put out a policy a week ago that I think they should have adopted with respect to certain uh, flights from critical countries, using the EI system to allow people to self-quarantine and, and promoting that. Um, so I have some complaints, but certainly this is a global uh, crisis, the economic crisis that's resulting, uh, means that Canada should be prepared. And we haven't been because of reckless spending, uh, uh, uncompetitive actions in our resource industry and other core sectors of our economy. So we're weak now, 
going into a recession. And we didn't need to be. It was the poor decisions of Mr. Trudeau and his government. I want to walk through some of the things you've been talking about in the leadership race. You've said if you become prime minister, you'll invoke the notwithstanding clause to override the courts uh, to impose mandatory minimum sentences for serious crimes. Why do you believe that's an appropriate use of the notwithstanding clause? Because that's exactly what the premiers and the, the, the leaders that created our modern constitution required, was that from time to time, when there needs to be a balance between decisions of the court and, and parliament, parliament can reign supreme. Several provinces have, have used it in limited measures. This is a case where we're talking about use of a weapon committing violence against another citizen. So I think the public policy objective of denunciating that conduct, of, of protection of the public, Peter, uh, is more important, and Parliament can exert that will to say, look, we're going to attach minimum sentences to show the severity of these crimes when an illegal uh, handgun or weapon oh. is used. Oh, okay, so where, it's where an do appropriate you, use of the power. Where do you draw the line there? What if, what if party members, for instance, uh, Conservative Party members, uh, pressed you to use that uh, notwithstanding clause to override a court ruling, for instance, on gay or same-sex rights? I would never use it to overturn a right. been absolutely clear. Let's not be afraid of this tool in our Constitution, Peter, for, for using public policy decisions where Parliament can say, look, the courts have struck this down widely. We're going to bring it back for only narrow provisions where there's a violent act perpetrated or smuggling of illegal weapons uh, and using and trafficking illegal weapons. We think public safety, we think denouncing that conduct is paramount. But in my leadership, it would never be used with respect to a human right. In fact, my record as a parliamentarian has always been in favor of voting for human rights, and that will be the way I approach leading the party. Okay, uh, how, let's, let's go from that to, uh, uh, how will you deal with social conservatives in the caucus and, um, uh, or the party that, want you, uh, that may want you to reopen the debate on abortion or, or that reopen the debate on, on same-sex marriage? How will you deal with that? Well, first of all, we deal with different points of view in politics with respect, Peter, and our party was forged on the ability for people to bring their various perspectives from cultural or religious backgrounds to Parliament. Uh, we have, Parliament means to speak, Parlement. We should be able to bring those views, but do it in a way that's respectful. As leader, I've always said we need to respect human rights and decisions of the court. I have voted that way for seven years, sometimes being in the minority of voting positions. But I've tried to say that we need to respect liberty, human rights, and the rule of law. So, so to be clear, you're prepared to uh, have members express those points of view, but uh, a government led by Aaron O'Toole, you're saying, we'll, we'll never reopen the abortion debate, never reopen the same-sex marriage debate. Is that fair? As a government, no, absolutely not. The, but within that, you can have a debate on a range of issues that people might bring forward from a social conservative what? or faith perspective. Uh, I voted for a law called Cassie and Molly's Law, for example, that was re with respect to the sentencing surrounding an attack on a pregnant woman. You know, some people talked a lot about life issues with that bill. At its heart, it was also a public safety bill. And as long as we have good debates, we've seen good debates in the House of Commons on assisted dying four years ago. I think you, fo you followed that debate closely where MPs respectfully brought their points of view. What I don't like about society today, and I've been challenging this, is increasingly many voices on the left are suggesting that if you disagree with them on anything, you're a bad person. And that's cancel culture that I've disagreed with for many years. We have a democracy. We should have a respectful and healthy debate and recognize that people will bring issues 
to Parliament, and if it's done respectfully, we can have debates. But for me, I've always been clear when it comes to, to human rights. Okay. I stand for them. I, I defended them in uniform. Why do you think Peter McKay is the wrong choice to lead the Conservatives? I think that you look at the crisis we're facing um, right now with the global economy, you look at the illegal blockades, you look at the th new threats in the world with respect to Russia and emergent China. We don't need to, to go backwards as a party, in my view. Peter's a good friend. He's, he served very ably as defense minister, but I wore a uniform of service. So I'm not a career politician, Peter. I served 12 years in the military, 10 years in the private sector. I worked with job creators. I understand the economy. We need someone to get this country moving again. We need someone that will stand up for the rule of law. We need someone that will unite this country, which was not divided when the Conservatives were last in government. And now we have a resurgent bloc Quebecois, right. and we have a Wexit movement, and a prime minister who seems to be on holidays half the time. So right. we all, need all, to get all the, serious. But all those, all those things you've mentioned, specifically, what, what is it about Peter McKay and what you've heard him say that contributes to any of those failings you've just mentioned? I don't think Peter brings the skill set or the ability to unite the country at a time it needs to be. The fact that Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, knows that I can do that, knows that my background, the fact that I worked in the energy industry before I joined the military, I've always stood up for our resource sectors and jobs, uh, the fact that I've lived across this country, um, I speak French, all the elements that I think are critical for our next leader to not just keep our party united. We need to keep the country united, and that's why I'm running. But do you think he's too much of a, some, some people, do you think he would take the party too much to the left? Is that the problem? Peter McKay's a lefty? Um, he'll, he'll have to articulate what he wants to do. He's changed his position on a few issues, even in the course of the two months of this race so far. So I, I don't think Peter has been clear about where he would be uh, as conservative leader. I'll leave that to him. Um, I've been very clear throughout my political career uh, where I'm at on issues. Uh, I am a, a proud conservative. I, I've fought on a range of issues from military and veterans to foreign affairs, public safety, and certainly the economy. I think with this sort of age of disruption, the uncertainty we're in, the disunity right. we're but in, we need a doer, not just a, a sort of a career I, I guess what I'm getting at is, is what, what, may, what have you heard from Peter McKay that you think makes him less of a conservative? Uh, Peter is a, is a good conservative. He, he led the progressive conservative party, Peter, 17 years ago. Um, I've only been in politics seven years, but the, the country and the issues we're facing is for, for the new generation. I don't think we need to, to go back. I also think it's difficult when you're not in the House of Commons. I can move a few seats over and hold Justin Trudeau to, to account on day one. Okay. I can actually bring the vote of non-confidence in the House of Commons. Peter will have that challenge. So he's my friend, I respect him, but I don't think he has the skills needed at this critical time for our country. A couple of quick things to finish on in the minute or so we have left here. We, we've heard your messaging uh, to the grassroots, and I get, that, that's good for the base you already have, but what is your plan to grow the party uh, with more voters in the, in the middle who've supported Conservatives in the past? Aren't they really the people you need to win over if you're gonna form government? Well, we need to win more seats in my region of the country, the 905, in the 416, the GTA. We will. Um, I, I've won three times here in the 905. I, I've got roots across this country from my military service. I think I have the ability to win. I'm also going to go after NDP seats, Peter, because in Windsor, in, in Hamilton, you know, the NDP doesn't stand for working people anymore. They're a social movement. They are supporting the blockades and the illegal protests we need people to be able to provide for their family, to work, to value hard work. 
Uh, and anyone's going to be welcome in my Conservative Party if they want to build this great country. Um, and whether they voted NDP in the past, Liberal in the past, I'm going to be reaching out to them. We're going to grow a big blue tent and we're going to win. Okay, uh, very quickly, uh, you're uh, rolling out your platform later this week, as I understand. Uh, what are you going to be saying about climate change? Because that was clearly an issue for the party in the last election. Uh, what are you going to be proposing? Or I, maybe you don't want to give me, give me that today, but give me some sense of the direction you think a Conservative government will take uh, fighting climate change under your leadership. Under my leadership, we will have a plan out early. It will be an effective plan to get emissions down and we will defend it. I think we launched our plan way too late and we allowed our opponents to say we had no plan, we were deniers. I did environmental work as a lawyer. These issues are important to me, Peter. I will also respect provincial plans. As the court has recently said, the carbon tax top-down approach the Trudeau government has used is actually unconstitutional. So respecting the provincial plans... Well, in fairness, that's, one, that's down, one court out of three, in, in fairness. That's, yeah, it's my assessment yeah, too. Okay. I also think Bill C-69 is unconstitutional and nine out of ten premiers asked the Prime Minister not to pass it. You wonder where the national unity crisis came from? It's quite simple. Justin Trudeau. So we need to address the things he's done to destabilize our economy. But I will have a climate change plan that works on large emitters, getting them down on a targeted schedule, Peter, without economic disruption. That's where we have to come up with smart policy. Um, and I, I, I brought some out a few years ago. Stay tuned for our policy uh, launch at erinotool.ca. All right, Aaron O'Toole, uh, good to talk to you again. We'll talk again soon. Take care. Thank you. The federal government introduced legislation today to crack down on conversion therapy across Canada. That's the controversial therapy aimed at altering an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity. The legislation will amend the criminal code to make it an offense to cause a minor to undergo conversion therapy, taking a minor to another country for conversion therapy, forcing a person to undergo conversion therapy against their will, profiting from providing conversion therapy, and advertising an offer to provide conversion therapy, all of those punishable uh, under the criminal code. Here's the Justice Minister, followed by one of the survivors of the conversion therapy who attended today's announcement. Conversion therapy is premised on a lie, that being homosexual, lesbian, bisexual, or trans is wrong and in need of fixing. Not only is that false, it sends a demeaning and a degrading message that undermines the dignity of individuals and the LGBTQ2 community as a whole. Contrary to what some might say, there is no right or wrong when it comes to who you are or who you love. To the Canadians that want to get out of conversion therapy, it gets better. It got, it got better for me and countless of other Canadians that are in this movement. As for me today, I'm not okay. I'm sad that this, this, it must go this far to tell people that I am being harmed. I'm sad that I lost my friends. I'm sad that I'll never be able to speak to them again because they believe that this is right. There is nothing wrong with being queer or trans because we are diverse, lovely, kind, respectful, fun, and now free. Abartis Chagger is Canada's Minister of Diversity and Inclusion and Youth, and she is with me now in our studios. Minister, good to see you again. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Uh, why has the government come to the conclusion now that this type of therapy must be the subject of, of criminal code uh, protections and offences? What evidence have you relied on here? 
So we've been having conversations from coast to coast to coast when it comes to um, intentional conversion therapy that's trying to change somebody's gender identity or their sexual orientation. Uh, we know it doesn't work, we know it's destructive, we know it's harmful, uh, and that's why it's important that the government of Canada step up. Minister Lametti had sent a message to his counterparts uh, before the election to say that we would be taking action on this file, um, informed by Canadians, informed by organizations, academics, experts, and the list goes on. Uh, today we had um, a good announcement uh, about the legislation that we've introduced in the House of Commons. Right. This is probably the most progressive legislation in the world. And we had people that were there, including Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo, who actually informed the provincial, uh, province of Ontario. Yes, she's a former MPP in Ontario. The, this bill provides, the, let, let me walk through it a bit. The bill provides criminal code amendments to prevent minors from receiving conversion therapy. But it's, it's not an outright ban on the practice, uh, since it would still allow conversion therapy to non-minors uh, who want it who want it, as long as it's not a paid service or not advertised. Have I got that right? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yep, so okay. competent individuals that are able, adults that are able to make their own choices are still able to make their choices. But you and Mr. Lametti said today uh, at the news conference, suggested it's a, it's a cruel practice that can lead to lifelong trauma, and there's lots of evidence of that. So I guess if I'm wondering if it's a, if it's a cruel practice, why is it being permitted at all? Why isn't this an outright ban? Adults are able to make their decisions and their choices. Uh, that's part of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Um, adults choose to consume alcohol, smoke cigarettes, now even cannabis. Those are choices that they make. What we know is that when it comes to minors, uh, that the federal government has a responsibility to enact, to bring forward legislation that actually ensures that every Canadian can realize their potential, be their true selves, and that's what this legislation does. LGBTQ2 rights are human rights, um, and today the Government of Canada is acting, and it's really about protecting LGBTQ2 Canadians. We had people come today uh, to share their stories, and what we what was demonstrated is that we still have a lot more work to do. Right. We know that there are vulnerable populations within our country that are not able to succeed, and it's unfortunate. There are uh, people from these communities that have said, like, I've never interacted with conversion therapy, and that's great. If you have a supportive network around you that's allowing you to realize your potential, that's great. But we want an inclusive Canada for every Canadian, and that's why this ban is so important. Because we know, I know some activists have been proposing some kind of an outright ban. Make it, if you make the practice illegal even though adults make their own choices if you make it illegal uh, it provides you with a uh, I suppose a, a different message uh, to anybody providing the service even if it's not for money and even if it doesn't involve advertising is this a question of just like you're into some gray area of the law there if you were to try to enforce that kind of a ban you're not sure you could do it so it's exactly the most it's the most progressive legislation we've taken it as close to the line that we can to ensure that we're still protecting uh, charter rights for Canadians uh, what we know is that it's a practice that does not work research shows that the conversion th therapy causes great harm uh, when it comes to uh, mental health suicide rates uh, it's destructive practice and the more I've been in this portfolio and having these conversations, the more that I knew that we needed to take action sooner than later. The, how do you legally prove if someone's being forced to undergo conversion therapy against their will? I think that's going to be one of the challenges. Presumably that, that would require a, a complaint from somebody who's, you know, who's been forced to, to undergo it and then some sort of a criminal investigation. The government's prepared to devote those, believes those resources need to be devoted to eradicate this, this practice. 
we've got strong laws in our country and I have confidence in our institutions to ensure that the law is upheld. Uh, and I think that's what will will take place. Um, of course, we'll have to work with provinces and territories, but three provinces have already um, put forward a conversion therapy ban. If you look at PEI, Nova Scotia, Ontario, mm -hmm. this practice has already been taking place in Ontario for and five years. And other cities as well, Calgary and, and cities have been taking the charge as well. What's important is that uh, all Canadians from coast to coast to coast today know that the government of Canada has introduced legislation to ban this practice across the country. Uh, you're going to hear from the critics, you probably already have through the process, and some of them are suggesting, look, this this will stop parents from having conversations Entirely the with, with their children about sexuality and about... And uh, the politics of fear will not work here, and what it is, this is about saving young people's lives. These are about real conversations. Discussions about someone's sexual orientation or gender identity are not targeted in this legislation. What is targeted is... Um, forcing an individual to undergo conversion therapy that they're not asking for. Um, I, I've heard a lot of stories from Canadians and I'm so thankful for the family in which I was raised. Um, I am a person of faith and I was taught to love every individual around me and to see the best in them because people are good people. What we know is that there's some bad things happening and we cannot stand idly by and not take action. Um, the stories that we heard today from individuals and a lot mm -hmm. more people are sharing their stories. These people are traumatized for the rest of their lives. I want them to know they have a partner in the federal government. I want them to know that they matter and we are listening to them and we are going to work with them to ensure that they can succeed and contribute in any way that they want to. I should point out in our conversation that uh, quickly on the penalty side, the maximum five years for offenses involving the minors that we and talked a bit earlier and their hybrid offenses and two years involving the advertising or the offering uh, uh, offering of the service. So the, see, let, let, me, let me just finish on this. So uh, you're in a minority parliament. Have you, have you got buy-in from the other parties? It, today is a, I'll tell you, it's a really exciting day. Um, this legislation started not quite as far as we got to, but it took many people from across the country to do a lot of great work, and I really want to thank them uh, for really pushing us. Um, NDP MP Randall Garrison was there with he us was at, at our press conference, conference today, and, I think and the, spoke. Like the and you know, when you read the legislation, because no one saw it until today after question period, once it had been introduced, um, there was somewhat of a satisfaction. We all know we have a lot more work to do, but our government has enacted the most progressive legislation uh, in the world. And the individuals that were there, um, I will never forget my conversation with one individual. And, and his reaction was, man, you went further than I thought you would. And I said, thank you for helping us get there. Right. And we're going to do a lot more. Bartish Chagger, thanks for your time today. And we'll see how this plays through the legislative process in the House. But it sounds like uh, I think we heard from the Conservatives as well that they, they are in supporting in principle, but they want to see the details of the bill and study it a bit. We thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, the coronavirus, market meltdowns, First Minister's meeting coming up, another busy day and a busy week to come in this country. Let's bring in our panel of parliamentary journalists. Susan Delacourt is a columnist with the Toronto Star. Joel Denis Bellavance is the parliamentary bureau chief for La Presse. And John Iveson is a columnist for the National Post and parliamentary bureau chief for Post Media. Good to see you all again. Wow, I mean, it's, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> we've been sort of kicking this around before we start here. Where do you start with all of this? But let me, let me frame it this way. Look at what's 
what's fallen in, in the lap of this prime minister and this government again, and, and let's start there. How, how big of a, of a week is this for, for the prime minister and his government? Uh, this is huge um, because they all cascade into each other. You know, um, uh, I, I've, in my mind, I've developed a mnemonic for them. It's, it's been sort of ABC through this year, air crash, uh, blockades and now coronavirus <laughs> or and I, I'm dreading what the D is is it the drop in, in depression, the depression <laughs> um, but yeah it's uh, this is huge and they are all interrelated and the frustrating thing I'm sure for government for Canadians as well is that you don't know where this is going you know that um, and there's not much you can do to stop it um, We've had the first death. Wild question. I was yep. up at question period today. We had the first death in Canada. Since Friday, we've had locally transmitted cases as well. The numbers still aren't huge, and uh, but but the panic is out there. Yeah. And if people aren't panicking about getting the virus, they're going to be panicking about the results of the virus. Yeah, if you, you know, weren't panicking about yeah. uh, your own circumstance and health concerns, they, you, you know, if you watch what was happening on the stock markets today, yeah. oil prices. Uh, your concern. Uh, JD, what do you think? Well, the cascade of events that we've seen over the last 24 hours is bringing a lot of headaches to the Prime Minister because he's got to manage this, but also the Finance Minister, uh, Bill Mono, who has to table the budget, and uh, he has to go back to the drawing boards and redo basically his budget because of the current situation with the uh, price of oil dropping. And it is affecting many regions of the country, particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan, but also Newfoundland and Labrador. They rely a lot on the price of oil for their own revenue. So it is, um, you know, and the government was hoping that after the crisis we've seen with the air crash, the coronavirus and, and the blockades, that the budget would finally turn the page on those crises and bring good news and bring them back focused on their agenda. Well, guess what? It's not happening. Yeah, what do you think as you're watching this, John? Well, I think to some extent, you were, you, the question was about Trudeau, how big a week is it? I think he gets a little bit of a pass from the electorate who know that it is a global crisis and that sovereign governments have only got so much that they can do. Um, at the same time, it seemed curious to me that he was not present today and, and uh, didn't come out and say something, you know, to reassure Canadians because, you know, I think people are... He was at a couple of different events today related to International Women's Day. But he's in, he was in Ottawa this afternoon. He could easily have been in question period, it seems to me. And I think that uh, people do want to hear that the government is, is, is there as the sort of lender of last resort, as the, as the backstop when it comes to uh, spending money on health care if we need that, that kind of extra expense. Uh, if I were him, I would have been talking to Canadians today. That's an interesting uh, comment from, from John. I bring back to the last big crisis w we saw, you know, financially with the 2008-2009 crisis and Jim Flaherty, the finance minister, was there to reassure Canadians on, almost on a daily basis. We're okay, we're going to do fine, we're going to go through it, we're going to take the necessary measures to uh, re re calm people. And you also uh, had Mark Carney as the Bank of uh, Canada governor who was also playing a role in this. We don't see that kind of same uh, presence from the government in this uh, beginning of a new crisis. Does, does the, and we have the opposition parties today, or, or certainly the Conservatives, the official opposition, making the case that, look, um, everybody knew there would be a shock to the economy. We just didn't know what, because shocks to the economy happen. And you've been spending essentially like mad sailors for, for years, and here it is, and this jeopardizes the whole fiscal framework. Is, is, is there much validity to that? I was surprised, actually, at the Conservatives' line of questioning today in the House. I actually went up there to see what the mood would be. And the fact that they went on 
they, they weren't talking very much about the virus. They weren't talking about the stock market collapse specifically. They seemed to be using the day to just say, look, we told you so and you were awful already. Um, which I think it, it was more of a partisan tone than, than sort of what we're discussing. Where are you? What are the specifics about what is going on right yeah, now? They're trying what? to make the case that a conservative government would have been in a much better position to respond to this but yeah it but that doesn't really answer any Canadians practical questions about what is going on here and what could be done and what the conservatives want the government to do now I mean, uh, they do have a point though in that in that you know we've been four years of deficit spending I mean it's only relatively modest compared to the size of the economy it's about 1.2 percent of the economy um, we went 3.5 percent in 2008 2009 deficits of around about 50 billion but it does reduce the wiggle room. I mean, clearly, if you're $28 billion in deficit already, you can't spend, well, you could spend another right. 15. And we heard earlier in the program from economist Ian Lee saying, look, if, if this lasts and, and deepens, uh, you know, they've hung their hat on the whole debt to GDP ratio argument. He said, well, that, that, that's gone already. That, gone. that, that is yeah. in serious trouble. That's gone and, already. And then what's the argument? Even, even the last fiscal update showed that that was, had yeah. gone. So I think, you know, P Canadians were relatively sanguine about deficits when they thought deficits were under control and the way that the government communicated they were under control was that the de deficits in relation to the size of the economy were gradually going down right. well they're not anymore and the uh, prescription that the uh, conservative party is calling for that may be more damaged than, than anything else because they want cuts to the government and when you're in a crisis now you Usually, the government tries to spend to stimulate the economy or try to lower the, uh, limit the damage. But if you bring more cuts to that, I mean, well, I mean the big, and, and yeah. today the the word "r" recession was pronounced many times by the conservative party. So, is this about to be pronounced as well by the financial? We've seen conservative governments in recession, and. They spent it more than, yeah. than anybody. So, <laughs> exactly. you know, I don't think, I don't think anybody's cutting. There was a good exchange about that, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. today. With, uh, let me, let yeah. me move down uh, the road a little. We'll see where the week takes us. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, we have a first minister's meeting coming at the end of the week. And first minister's meetings, you know, they, they can go sideways in a hurry, uh, which is why Stephen Harper never wanted to do them, right? I mean, it's hard to control that agenda. And as much as I think going in, into this meeting, the government would have liked, they knew they have to talk about health transfers to the provinces that want more money. They know they had to talk about, uh, you know, um, opening up the rules for the fiscal stabilization fund. And, but they probably were heading into this meeting thinking there's a way to manage this so that we don't, you know, give away the bank. Have they lost control of that conversation now too, given the week we're going to see? Look, the provinces are going to make the case. Look what's happening around us. We need more money for health transfers, and we need to top up. Alberta is going to come to this meeting, having taken another whack in the chin mm -hmm. with oil prices. Uh, it, it makes you wonder if they're going to just get everything they ask for and walk away. Uh, they've already lost control of the timing of this meeting. This meeting, remember, was supposed to take place in February. And I think all of us, when we were doing our you know, year-ahead things, were saying it was going to be the first big test of, of Justin Trudeau. Little did we know that there would be many others. So already this thing has been kicked down the road and the timing has been changed because of the blockades. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still waiting to see, are they going to set an example by traveling themselves across the country when Canadians, by the <laughs> end of this week, you don't know whether big gatherings like a first minister's gathering are a good idea if we're telling people not to 
gather. Right. So well, it might, um, it might be to the advantage to just have the first ministers in a room and not the three hundred people who come with them, or right? maybe just have them on the phone. <laughs> yeah, or just have them on the phone. <laughs> yeah, but I think it is going to turn into something all, all of us have seen lots of times before. It's going to be a healthcare, and remember the premiers. Um, they all came together with their list of demands, you know, the Council yep. of the Federation last year, and it was healthcare was the top number one top issue. Yeah. So Sh shelve the far national pharmacare plan. Yep. Just start by giving us more money. So no. I, that, we're going to see escalator that. from yeah. three percent up. I think it's five point two. They want the yeah. escalator up to. One know, of right? the top priority with the government was to talk about climate change and the climate change policies that they want to bring forward, but that would probably take a back seat to other demands, the economy, which is, you know, might be hurt by what's happening, but also the demands of the provinces in terms of increasing uh, health care transfer. So the agenda that the government wanted to put forward at that meeting, the federal government, the Trudeau government, right. is out the window right now. John, what do you think of it? Well, it, it just feels increasingly like this government is a, a cork in a torrent going down <laughs> a, a stream. It just seems to be buffeted by one thing or another. And uh, whatever the, the agenda was that they wanted to impose, it's just been totally derailed. Let's finish on this. That's cheery. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hesitated to say not to be too, uh, you know, climate change may be, may be important again because we might all be living in tents, but no. Uh, the, let me talk about Aaron O'Toole. Interviewed him earlier on the program. Uh, what do you think of the kind of campaign he's running compared to what he did in 2017, Susan? I was fascinated last week with the Jason Kenney endorsement. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason, maybe it's because I was around here then, but I want to know the story of what was the falling out between Jason Kenney and Peter McKay because Jason Kenney's letter was very specific about things he did not like about Peter McKay right. and that Aaron O'Toole is now carrying the torch for that uh, side tells an interesting story of liberal-like divisions, uh, sort of Martin Kretchen-like divisions. It, it makes you the, wonder whether there was some head-butting around a cabinet yeah. table about well, I think it would money for different regions. No, I think country. it goes back to, um, to the 2006 convention, where, remember, there was the kerfuffle about how we picked the next leader. Right. Both, yeah. both yeah. these guys thought they would, yeah. could be a good bet there in the running, and Kenny wanted the one-member, one vote, and... and uh, Peter McKay, McKay insisted on having all, vote, all writings treated equally right. uh, Which, or else. And I think if you remember back, there was some bad blood around that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. Erin Tolley is behaving right now as a person who is chasing the top prize. And you could see by the way he responds to media questions, but also the kind of people he's attracting. In Quebec, for example, he managed to get Alupa Clark who is a former conservative MP, was defeated in the last federal election, but he is seen as a sort of a nationalist, uh, a Tory blue, and so this is interesting, this is a development that happened over the last two weeks before Mr. Kenny announced his endorsement of Mr. Woodall. So he's acting that he's talking a lot to the base, acting as a person. He's clearly, clearly tacking yeah. right from some of the things we'd heard from him. He insists yeah. he's not, that he's always believed these things, but I never heard him say Even he, notwithstanding clause? I don't ever n recall him saying that no. if he were running you know, in charge of the country, he'd be using the notwithstanding clause. But, but Yeah, it's interesting how many, um, and, and again, liberals have found this in divisive leadership contests, how many uh, crumbs you leave out there for the opposition to pick up in a federal election. You know, that um, you can replay ads over and over again from leadership debates as we've seen and uh, how nasty the, and divisive this race gets um, and how that plays in a future election are going to be interesting things to watch. And it's funny because right now in this race, Mr. O'Toole is more 
uh, to the right of the center. Whereas in 2017, when it ran, he was yeah. uh, well, saying was that he was like a Brian Mulroney type of conservative. Right. Well, this is what people didn't make it is actually. So well, we'll see. All right. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you all. Thank Thanks. you. Well, that's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. We'll see you next time. Thanks for watching.